I'm Valerie Earnshaw. I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with Dave Humes, who is a board member of Attack Addiction, a local advocacy group focused on addiction here in Delaware. He's a naloxone trainer, a member of the Drug Overdose Fatality Review Commission, and the co-chair of the Changing Perceptions and Stigma Subcommittee of the Behavioral Health Consortium in Delaware. So Carly, I haven't told Dave this, but I have a lot of affection for him because he reminds me of like all of my uncles. I feel like I could count on Dave to tell dad jokes at a picnic or meet me on, you know, 95 or local highway if my car broke down. So I don't know. Am I off base? No, I think Dave is way cooler. I wish Dave was my (laughs) uncle, actually. (laughs) Okay. But then unlike my uncles, Dave spends his days distributing naloxone all over our state, which is a medication that can reverse opioid overdoses. And he has this like, you know, little interest in supervised consumption sites as a form of harm reductions, which is still like mega controversial. There are places where people can use drugs under supervision of medical professionals and they're, you know, another strategy to prevent overdose deaths. Dave has done a lot of work in Delaware and other states to get naloxone policies passed. And now he's kind of turning to other policies to address the opioid crisis and reduce overdose rates. So we were really interested in getting to know Dave's story and continuing our conversation this summer about the intersection of science and policy with him. So please enjoy this conversation with Uncle Dave Humes. Dave Humes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Valerie. I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you about uh, some really important issues. So we have a lot of folks who aren't from Delaware who listen. So for the people who aren't Delaware, I just want them to know that we're chatting today with like a local superhero celebrity, (laughs) especially in the area of... Hardly. Making <laughs> a lot of good changes in our local opioid crisis. So, so Dave, for the folks who haven't had the benefit of attending one of your naloxone trainings or reading about you in the paper, which Carly and I have both done both, <laughs> could you tell us a little bit just about your background and how you got involved in some of these issues surrounding the opioid crisis and recovery in Delaware? Absolutely. I said it many times in public meetings. I, I like to steal a good quote when I can find one. And, and I like to start out, you know, to tell the listeners with a quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And as we talk today, I, I hope the, the, your listeners will keep in mind, I'm really nobody special. I'm just a dad. And when I talk about our, our nonprofit organization, Attack Addiction, I jokingly say we're just a bunch of dumb moms and dads trying to figure it out because we're not professionals at what we do, but, you know, we try and find a way to get things done. So I'm a person in long-term recovery from alcohol and illegal drugs. I am not somebody who ever used heroin. And I don't say that because I would be embarrassed to say so. I say that because I think it's a different type of addiction, a stronger type of addiction, than all these other addictions. And if we go back to Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's somebody who had been addicted to heroin, had 20 years of sobriety and something drew him back and he overdosed and died. So again, I've been in recovery for a long time, but the thing that got me involved is I had two sons who were a year apart 
and they did absolutely everything together. They were played sports teams together. They they liked the same music and bands. They went to concerts together and everything. And my younger son Greg, he started doing what, what people do as teenagers. You know, they are wired to experiment, to push limits, push boundaries, and whatnot. And but both my boys, you know, did a little experimentation. They you know they they were doing mushrooms and they were they were smoking some weed and that sort of thing. And but my son Greg kept going and. He started using other things such as cocaine. And we, it was interesting because at the time we tried to get him into a rehab and they said, uh, you know, well, we can't take him because cocaine isn't addictive. Once it's out of your system, it's all gone. You know, if you had a problem with alcohol. <laughs> so we said, oh, yeah, we forgot about the alcohol problem just to get him into some sort of treatment. Oh. That's, that's the way things were. And th- this goes back into about, you know, 2006, 2007, That's somewhere in there, you know. So so anyhow, you know, his use progressed and he started using heroin. He was introduced to heroin. He first started smoking it a little bit. And finally, he ran into a lady friend and it's not her fault, but she introduced him to injecting and whatnot. And to feed his habit, he got involved in some things he shouldn't have gotten involved in and ended up going to prison. And what I what I have to tell everybody about Greg is anybody who ever met him would describe him with one word, and that was sweet. You know, oftentimes we think of people who get addicted to these substances as being, you know, risk takers and whatnot. And what we found out along this journey with some of the other parents that have been involved is it's typically people who feel as if they don't fit in, who are quiet and more sensitive and whatnot. And that's why they turned to different drugs. So Greg was really a sweet kid. He really was. And you hear somebody going to prison, they go, well, that doesn't sound so sweet to me, you know, but in effect, it was. He served 21 months in prison. And when he was released, you know, we had had the talks, of course, about, you know, not starting relationships and that sort of thing, you know, get yourself straight before you do that. And, you know, he started a relationship and he ended up violating his parole. And he went back to prison. Mm. His second stint in prison, it was it was rocky between he and I at first because he violated shortly before Christmas. You know, I was angry. And even though I, I knew about addiction or thought I knew about addiction, I, I still didn't know enough to understand about heroin and whatnot. So we we were, you know, we were on icy terms at the time. And they cooled. Certainly. And because, again, the the only thing you can really do is give your love and support Mm -hmm. to try to get them back on the right path. And it was while he was doing his his second stint in prison, he said, you know, I I coasted the first time around. He said, but I don't want to spend my life institutionalized, whether it be rehabilitation or correctional facilities. And he really got it at that time. He was in prison in Pennsylvania. He got released on parole to my wife and I. We had his parole transferred here to Delaware. Originally, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. And he was doing absolutely everything right in his life. He was exercising. He was very engaged with my wife and I. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't upstairs on the computer or on his phone. You know, we'd, we'd watch sporting events together. And, and, he, you know, he was just very engaged with us. He'd go to bed early. He'd get up early in the morning, do meditation, do some exercising. He was getting ready to participate in a, a, one of those mud ruckus for uh, oh, yeah. uh-huh. for, for MS. Yeah, like many early 20-year-olds. Just like, <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, <laughs> he was completing his 
community service at the Food Bank of Delaware and whatnot. And he was doing everything absolutely right in his life. And he was gradually getting together with his old friends because some people like to portray opioid addiction, heroin addiction as, as a party drug, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's a drug of shame. And so it, it distances you from the good people in your life. It distances him from his brother, who was so very close. But he was starting to get together again with the people who were the good guys in his life and getting reacclimated to normalizing his life. And we had conversations about different things. He was working for me at the time in a small business. He had a great aptitude for it. We spent a lot of hours in the car going to job sites, driving up to North Jersey and Virginia and that sort of thing and talking about some things. And and one of the things I had said to him was that I really felt that he should quit drinking as well because he had never, you know, apparently had a problem, a drinking problem. But I thought, I said to him, I said, you know, my fear is that some night you'll drink too much and cloud your judgment. You'll say, yeah, I can do this again. And then you'll be off and running again. Mm-hmm. And what happened is he was reacclimating himself. He was out with some friends that I knew that were the good guys in his life. And he bumped into some old running mates of his and, uh, you know, clouded judgment. And he thought he could go out and do this one more time. And, you know, when, when you're away from opioids for a while, you have a change in tolerance. He tried to use what he had used before, and that decision proved to be fatal. And the people he was with, they lifted him up. They put him in his car. They drove him to the parking lot of a hospital, and they simply walked away. They did not, you know, they did not go to the emergency room doors and punch on that red button and run like crazy. They didn't hit the key fob to get the horn beeping and run away. They didn't go a block away. And try to call and say, hey, go look in your parking lot. They just they just left him there. And by the time they discovered him, it was too late. They rushed him in. They tried to revive him, but he had been there too long. And in the aftermath, I, I met with the investigating detective two days later. As a matter of fact, two days from now, Wednesday, we'll, uh, I'll mark the ninth year since he's been gone to the day. So. But two days later, I met with the investigating detective to reclaim his belongings, his car, and that sort of thing. And the detective said to me, you know, if, if we had a 911 Good Samaritan law or Narcan law, your son might very well be alive today. Okay. And those were the words that stuck with me. I was trying to decide what I was going to do. I had a small business at the time, and I, I talked to some people who advised me financially. Somebody says they own a business, you figure, oh, they, you know, they got a nice expensive car and everything it was a small business let me tell you, you know, <laughs> we have a nice little townhouse but again nothing special but i talked to some financial people and they said you guys don't live high on the hog you know if if you want to you know retire now you can probably do it so the goal was really to try to do something about this whole heroin crisis at the time and i made the decision to close down my business and people said to me you dummy why didn't you sell it Okay, And and I, I didn't sell it because I didn't want to be involved in it anymore. And I knew I would have had to sign a contract, uh, you know, for consulting for a number of periods. So I, I decided really just to close it down because most of the business was in my head, 90% of it. So it took some time to close it down. I wanted to make sure, you know, I, I did things right and didn't leave anybody out hanging out there. And that took me till October of 2012. And, you know, I was ready to sort of jump into the fight. but. Thanksgiving was coming up 
And I knew the first Thanksgiving would be extremely hard. It's always been my favorite holiday, you know, just immediate family, no presents, no cards, all that stuff. It's just family gathering. And I said, you know, I better hold off, which I did. And during the course of closing down my, my business, the end of September, prior to being fully closed down, the, the local newspaper had a front page story on, on heroin. And I read that article and I folded it up and I put it on the corner of my desk and I said, I'm going to get back to this. So in January of 2013, January 2nd, probably it was, I picked up that newspaper. I, I read through it. Anybody who was quoted in there, I reached out and I contacted. And I was really fortunate because one of the people that it led me to the doorstep of Jeannie and Don Keister, who started an organization here in Delaware called Attack Addiction. They had lost their son on December 23rd, 2012. And, you know, you think about that, if that's not bad enough, it it was worse for them because it was also their daughter's birthday. That's what she has to live with that time of year, year, every year. And they started this organization within two months of the loss of their son, Tyler. And they started the organization not as a support group, but as an open, transparent action group. We were determined to do something. My vow after losing Greg my vow to him was to somehow save a life in his name. And I didn't care if I knew that person's name. I didn't care if they knew Greg's or my name. But the idea was to somehow save a life in his name. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's like, well, how do you do this? <laughs> so what we decided to do at, at Attack Addiction was when we, we said, okay, what do we do? I brought up that quote from the detective, we had a 911 or a Good Samaritan law, some might very well be alive today. And we decided that would be a good idea. At the time, we, we were a very small group. And the decision was whether we tried to get a bill passed with both of those things in there, or whether just go for one. And if we were just going to try for one, how to go about it, which one should we select? Okay, so, David. Oh, this is let me put a pause here because I have a million questions for you. Okay. And I'm so excited because, you know, <laughs> to hear about the, you know, how you start working towards the making these changes in the bills. But you started off. So, first off, I just want to say that you started this story by saying that, you know, you're nobody special. And I just have got to disagree. <laughs> yeah. You know, because. As you're telling this story, and I just, I want to say a huge thanks to you for sharing it both, you know, here and Carly and I have heard you share it in other places as well. And I don't know what the experience of sharing that story is, but the experience for me of hearing your story, like every time I'm teary-eyed, every time I'm, I'm super moved and it's such a powerful, it's a powerful story and it's, it must be hard to share it, but it's also such a gift for allowing people to hear more about the experience as you go along and tell it. You're you're busting stereotypes left and right. Like it's really amazing. And you're also underscoring some big problems. Like, you know, something that jumped out to me on this one just was that, you know, we've had a few conversations now around how we take a criminal justice approach rather than a public health approach towards addiction. And in this story, like why is it that Greg landed in jail twice or, you know, circulates through prison, but he doesn't get care? Like you took him to care and he didn't get care. We talked last summer with a pediatrician, Scott Hadlin, who who really highlighted for us 
how we're lacking in treatment for young people. And so that's one thing that runs through my mind with this. But I also just like, I personally resonate quite a bit with your story in terms of, well, first off, I was born in Pennsylvania, moved to Delaware. So (laughs) we both have that same, you know, migration pattern, but we have that common wealth of knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But we have similar humor apparently. And then I can also relate to just like getting really bad. Our family got really bad advice in the childhood about addiction, you know, and about, yeah, how to respond to it and, you know, what treatment options were available to us. We also have lost, you know, a family member to overdose. And so then I have to push back on you about this, like nothing special piece. I mean, in some ways, you know, many families have lost people to addiction. Many fathers have lost sons to overdose and not all of them have you know, retired early and really thrown themselves into this movement. And it's amazing that you connected with another family, you know, you connected with the Keisters early on and found some folks were also doing that, but that's the only part of your story that I have to disagree with and push back. (laughs) Well, Well, that, and I was just going to say, Dave, you've also, you know, saved more than, than one life for Greg too. I know that through your work with the naloxone training and all that. So I have to agree that I think you were pretty wrong about the nothing special thing, but continue. Well, you know, I, I, I say that because I, I want people to realize that they can step up and do this, really. You know, if you step up, you can make these changes, certainly. And, you know, it's interesting about saving a life. It's <laughs> I wanted to save a life and then I got greedy. <laughs> not enough. One I love that that's enough. the best place to be greedy in. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and one of those saved through this work was my cousin. cousin. Oh, wow. I got a, okay. I got a call from from one of my cousins and said, "You you saved your cousin's life." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "He overdosed. They called nine one one. They administered naloxone, and he's alive." You know, so you hear that, and Dave. you know, it it hits you certainly. It really hits you. Yep. All right. Well, let's return the wheel to you with you taking us up to the part of the story where you've gotten together with the Keysters. You have formed Attack Addiction. You're a board member of Attack Addiction, yes, which is fantastic. And you're making a decision about whether to pursue just the Narcan access laws or the Good Samaritan or both in combination. So right. could you could you catch up folks who may not be familiar with Narcan? I know you're okay. very familiar with this. <laughs> could you catch them uh, up as to what that... Uh, let, let me talk just very briefly about Good Samaritan because that, that leads that leads to the naloxone. So our decision was to try to get a law, a 911 Good Samaritan law, which would allow people to call 911 without being arrested, charged, or prosecuted, both the person who made the call and the person who was in medical distress. So it seemed to us that's a good idea. It doesn't cost yeah. the state any money. How can they object to that? So that was really our strategy. But even to get there before you get to the 911 Good Samaritan law, we have to go to the Same Sex Marriage Act. Because again, we were just a bunch of dumb moms and dads. Uh Like, well, how do you pass a law? Well, basically how to pass a law. But but what's the actual process? What do you have to go through? (laughs) So at the same time in 2013, Delaware was looking at passing, you know, changing the law to allow same-sex marriage. That had been worked on from early on uh, during the legislative session. 
and actually passed through its final step at the end of April or early May of that year. So what we did is, as a strategy, we looked at that bill and we looked at the members of the Senate, how they voted. We looked at the members of the House as they voted. And the people who were in favor of that bill, we thought would be sympathetic to our our cause of the 911 Good Samaritan Law. And we thought we may have to do some further education to those who had voted against the same sex. So we we took sort of a two-pronged approach and, you know, we sought to educate them as to why they should pass that bill. So, you know, ultimately we were successful passing it. The same-sex marriage bill was a little bit over 50% vote in favor of it to pass that bill both in the House and the Senate here in Delaware. And when we, it was just, it was so moving when we passed the Good Samaritan Bill, because in the Senate, we passed it unanimously. And then in the House, we did the same. There were three members who weren't present to vote, but it was just really a very moving thing. So following the same-sex marriage path into the 911 Good Samaritan Bill, you know, led us to say, okay, we've done this. We sort of learned how to go through this. Mm-hmm. Now we can try to get the naloxone bill passed. So okay. we we used much of the same strategy that we had used before with the Good Samaritan bill. And, you know, we, we found a champion and a sponsor. We actually had a, a bill written up, you know, by a lawyer that was specific to Delaware. And they said, how do you want it? You want it sort of tight or you want it really broad? We said, make it as broad as possible. <laughs> we can get it through broad. That's great. You know, if we have to make some concessions along the way, you know, so be it. So anyhow, that was the following year in 2014. And again, we, we used that same strategy. We had our organization by that time was growing. And we asked all of our, our members, we thought we were geniuses at the time, but we're not the only ones to do this. We asked each of our members, we, we gave them some talking points. And what we asked them to do is put together an email mm-hmm. to their own representatives. The first thing they want to say in that is they're a constituent and a registered voter in there and tell them why they were in favor of this bill. And we told them all, what we also wanted them to do is reach out to five other people and ask them to do the same. Okay. Yeah. And reach out to five, have them reach out to five more through some of our, our studies and whatnot. It was our understanding that when you contact one of your state representatives, uh, elected officials, that each contact represents about 100 people. So, uh, you know, that, that's, okay. that's sort of like you have to go wild at that. You know, it's like, mm, sure. never thought of that. I just thought I was some dumb guy, you know, like my <laughs> state senator or whatever, you know. So, you know, it, it really has an impact. And, you know, we used, we put together a, a fact sheet about naloxone. We told them, you know, it was FDA approved in 1971. It had no, you know, it could not be abused in any way, shape or form like some of the MAT could. You know, it was inert. It only affected opioids and didn't affect anything else. So if you gave it to somebody who was not in an opioid overdose, it would not help them, but it would not harm them. So we had this fact sheet that we made sure we sent out to them to help pass the bill. And we were successful passing that one as well. We also sort of jumped in uh, with one of our representatives who was supportive. And at the same time, they had a bill that would allow all departments of peace officers in the state of Delaware to be trained in carrying naloxone. Local police couldn't just say at the time, oh, we're going to carry naloxone because it's going to save lives. You know, all departments had to be allowed to do it under Delaware law for them to be able to do it. So that bill was also passed, you know, at that same point in time. So we have been involved and in, written the initial bill of anything having to do naloxone in our state. Mm-hmm. 
And we've had several bills after that that, you know, that have been passed. We have one right now that it awaits the governor's signature. We found out in Delaware, we have a behavioral health consortium that addresses mental health and addiction issues. And we have a subcommittee on changing perceptions and, and stigma. And as a result of of our work on that committee, we found out that our original naloxone bill did not grant immunity from liability to, for lay people administering it. So right now that passed both houses pretty readily. We're just waiting to, to find out when, when the governor's going to sign that one. So, so know, Dave, so that, can you tell our listeners a little bit more when you say about the liability of administering the naloxone? Can you tell us a little bit about right. that? Well, some of the bills that have been passed along the way gave you know police officers liability from being sued for misadministration of naloxone. It, it was a very important thing for them to have that. Some of those those issues to me, it's like this can't hurt anybody. How can you sure. misadminister? You know, we look to try to find instances of where there had been allergic reactions or anything. And to this day, I haven't found one. I can't tell you. I spend you know twenty four hours a day, night and day you know, throughout the year looking for it, but we haven't been able to find that. But it came as a result because in our work with the subcommittee from the consortium, we went to some trade groups and said, you know, we were talking to them about their hiring policies for people who had had convictions for illegal drugs, what their policies were on treatment if they discovered somebody was in use. And at the end of the one meeting, I said, oh, by the way, if you ever want to, you know, have your folks trained out in the field to use naloxone, we're happy to do it because we know people in recovery gravitate toward the construction industry, to the restaurant industry and whatnot. And what we found out from that was that the companies, the construction companies, the restaurants and whatnot, they were in favor of it, but they said that their insurers were against it because they feared liability. And again, it's, you know, it's a matter of people not understanding that there's very little harm, you know, that you, you can receive from the law zone and whatnot. So, you know, we talked to the insurance department, the insurance department said, time out, that's a legal issue, go talk to the Department of Justice. So we got in touch with the Department of Justice and they said, you know, actually, that original bill does not have that liability protection in it. So you probably need a bill. So we said, okay, let's put together a bill. And again, so we're just awaiting a signature on that right now. We still need additional <laughs> protection against liabilities because the companies themselves would like it. And we get pushback from some organizations when it comes to immunity. So we have to be careful of the language. We have to try to, you know, put out a bill that's going to be palatable to some of these organizations who are against it for various reasons. I'm so impressed, Dave, that this is already awaiting a signature. I feel like, I mean, maybe you've been you know, hearing you talk about this liability issue, maybe you've been talking about it for longer than I'm aware of, but I feel like it was only a couple months ago where you, <laughs> I was at one of these subcommittee meetings and you we were like, oh, we've figured out that this liability thing is a barrier to people wanting to get trained and to using Narcan. And so you were like, so we're going to try and change it. You know, and to me, not, you know, it just feels like, you know, fast forward in time, maybe it's like a trick of COVID time warp or something. But it feels like fantastic progress. And it also almost in a way feels to me like it's reflecting the overall landscape of really rapidly changing policy in this area. I mean, it was only 2010 when there were only six states that even had a naloxone access law. And by 2017, all states had them. And so this is just this in, is, ver in varying degrees. Varying, it's important to say right. it. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything more that you'd like to say about that or? 
We're continuing no, no, to break no. down barriers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting. Like there's, we'll have to link to it, Carly, in the show notes, but there's actually a nice map that shows like how laws are changing. And you're right. Like there's just the, you know, naloxone access law, but then there's a whole bunch of other policies that people have had varying degrees of successes in passing that helps, you know, with access. So anyway, I'm just, before we got on this call, I was like, Carly, like Dave's also working on some other policy. I forgot what it is. We'll have to ask about the status of that. So look at, look at you. Like it's just waiting. <laughs> <signature. Right. laughs> well, you know, it's, it's been interesting because this group of bunch of dumb moms and dads, since we've come into existence and you have to throw last year out, we've passed 17 bills, seven, seven of them you know, over, over that time period. Seven of them were specifically our bills. 10 of them were bills that we were heavily in support of, You know, made public comment before committee hearings and that sort of thing. And right now <laughs> we have the liability bill and three others waiting for the governor to sign. <laughs> Tremendous. We have a concurrent resolution that we're waiting to get passed. It's going to declare August 31st in Delaware, International Overdose Awareness Day, and they're going to fly the flags at half staff in, in honor of all those people who have been lost. So, you know, the bills continue, but some of them go very quickly and, and some of them don't go so quickly. And, and it was really interesting because when we looked to pass the Good Samaritan Bill back in 2013, we were in June of the year, and for people out there, Delaware only has a part-time legislature, and they finish up at, at the end of June, on June 30th. And our bills didn't start to go through committee till June, and <laughs> there's, there's only Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays are the days where the legislature meets, committee hearings, or full legislature, whatever, and we're getting through a couple of them. And I said to one of our, our champions on the bill, like, <laughs> the end of June, we're about done here. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I said, I said, I, I guess we're going to have to wait till next year on this thing. And, you know, I, I just remember her looking me in the eye and she said, oh, we're going to pass this bill. And I went, <laughs> this is going to get done. And wow. we had our, our final committee hearing on June 26 of that year. And usually from committee, then it goes to the floor of the respective house. And the house agreed to suspend their rules, hold a special session so that they could vote on this bill and not have to bring all these parents who were there to support the bill back on another day. And, you know, so here it went to the last minute. And, you know, even even our, our naloxone bill the following year was, was passed at the end of June. And I started calling June funnel month because it seems like all the crazy, all the craziness <laughs> yeah. of the legislative year, all funnels down to June, you know, yep. no matter how early you start. But another bill that I, I am most proud of the 911 Good Samaritan law that we passed here for, for a lot of different reasons. But, and I'm certainly proud of the Lockstone Access Law. But the other one that I'm really proud of that we passed in, in 2019 is opioid impact fee bill. That took us four and a half years to pass. And it's a bill that puts a slight fee on the manufacturers of all opioids that are sold in the state of Delaware. Mm-hmm. And that those fees go into a special fund you know, stewardship fund to be used to help people who I like to say have been drug into addiction, you know. So Delaware was the first state in the nation to pass this bill. We had obviously a lot of pushback from a lot of representatives of the manufacturers of these opioids. And we knew it was going to be difficult, but you know, very proud of that bill. And, and the state has now collected money and, uh, you know, it's looking to spend that money to help some of these people. So we're really, really proud of that one. Maybe this would be a good moment just to 
for us to take a beat and talk about the opioid crisis in Delaware specifically and why it's important to do work in this area. So Dave, I know you and I have been on some calls, you know, with the National Institute on Drug Abuse that has highlighted rates of overdose in Delaware. And we've also talked about this in some of our other episodes that are coming out this summer. But Delaware is, you know, we're the second smallest state, I think, in the nation. Is that right? Carly's our native Delawarean. I'm the Delaware expert. It is true. We're second behind Rhode Island. Thank you, Carly. All right. But we are also second highest in rates of death for overdose. So Dave, you correct me if I'm wrong in getting this history, but what it looks like to me is that we were not doing well overall in overdoses, you know, through the 2010s, we were like creeping up. We were like, for a while, it looks like we were hanging around 10th in the nation, but then fentanyl hits and around 2017, we really pull ahead. And then we're sort of up hovering with rates of overdose that are similar to West, that are just after West Virginia. So it's like West Virginia, Delaware, and then there's a gap. And then there's other states that at least were the 2019 data. And when I've dug into it just a little bit further, I see that, you know, so it looks like fentanyl is an issue here, which for folks listening, that's a synthetic opioid. It's it's just super duper powerful and it gets mixed in, into the heroin into the yeah heroin supply. And so people don't necessarily know how much fentanyl they're getting and that can lead to overdose. But then I also saw that we had just recently over the weekend, I found a whole new report, the DEA report, which I which is new to me. So I'll have to dig in further to that. But so that's a drug enforcement agency. And I saw that we also have really high rates of overdose due to cocaine, which circling back to Greg's story about like cocaine and addiction. I mean that, you know, that just makes me think that we don't, we're not taking cocaine seriously <laughs> enough. But anyway, so in some, my impression is we have always had an issue with overdose in Delaware. It seems to be getting worse starting in 2017 when fentanyl comes onto the scene. And it looks like we also are having an issue with overdose like related to cocaine. So is that on track? What am I missing? Am I getting things wrong? No, you know, and, and I think really we started to, to spike even prior to 2017 with the introduction mm. to fentanyl. Fentanyl, when we talk about heroin here in the state of Delaware, one of our largest police forces is our Newcastle County Police Force. And they told us that if you go back 15 years ago, the composition of heroin was such that it was 30% pure. Mm-hmm. The heroin that they are taking off the street over the last couple of years is 70% pure and sometimes as high as 90% pure. So that's bad enough. But when we talk about fentanyl, fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. So I was talking to my son the other day, and I said, you got to help me with all these gigs and everything. I said, I understand miles per hour because I drive it, but help me out with the gigs. But so just to let people understand what fentanyl can do, if you took a, a package of sugar that you found in any coffee shop, there's approximately 300 grams of sugar in there. If that's fentanyl, three grams can kill a person. So if you're in a room of 100 people, a sugar packet of fentanyl can kill 100 people. And if you're in Delaware, if you have a shoebox of fentanyl, you can take out the state. Oh, wow. That is powerful. That's how strong this is. So, you know, one of the things I just don't understand about the dealers are, why do you try to kill your customers? Don't you want repeat business? And what the dealers are doing, 
they're mixing fentanyl in with heroin. They're mixing fentanyl in with cocaine, which is, this is what's in part leading oh. into cocaine overdose deaths. Okay. They're putting the fentanyl in weed because the idea is they want to get people hooked. And so, you know, it's not FDA approved stuff you're buying off the street. Right. So the, the dealers are trying to get people hooked. So they're, they're mixing the fentanyl in. And it, it's not just that they're mixing with, you know, other illegal drugs, but in many instances, what they're trying to do is they, they take the fentanyl and they, you know, mix it with fillers and whatnot, and they buy pill presses and they make it look like oxys. Okay. So you have that whole thing going on with the fentanyl, you know, that has been really bad over the last three or four years. That, and again, that's a, that's a national thing, certainly. So, and certainly I think here in Delaware, I think, 82% of the overdose deaths have some amount of fentanyl okay. within the system. So it's it's a, obviously a huge problem. Yeah. And then, I mean, COVID has just made it worse. So, I mean, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier when you were talking about Greg's story, but just this really, we, and we've talked about it also, just this relationship between like social isolation and disconnection and overdose risk. So first, you know, people who are more socially isolated are at greater risk of opioid use. And then opioid use leads to greater social isolation. And then the other problem with social isolation, I think you also like really hit this on the head when you said like heroin's not a party drug. Like the part of a risk of overdose is using heroin or using these opioids by yourself. And as people have been socially isolated, as they've been more likely to be using these drugs at home, then that increases the risk of overdose. And I'm not sure what the numbers look like lately. We'll have to probably wait and see. But you know, we were at a meeting earlier on in the epidemic where we saw the rates for Delaware and it just it looked like very bad news bears looked pretty scary for increases in overdose in Delaware. So I'm sure we'll have to wait for the dust to settle to find out more, but not going to be good. Last May in Delaware, we tied for the greatest number of overdose deaths in a month. So that was certainly in part due to COVID. And it looked as if that would put us on track to far exceed the overdoses from the prior year. We did exceed them, but not nearly as greatly as expected. I guess the good news in all this is that our overdoses increased, but the rate of overdose decreased. So we are below double digits for the first time since at least 2012. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So that's good. You know, part of it, you know, we can attribute certainly to naloxone, to Norcan. You know, as you've changed some of these laws, you know, in Dave's perfect world, I'd go buy a pickup truck and have Valerie drive around and I'd be handing out naloxone to everybody I saw, you know. That is also my perfect world. Yeah. Can we do that full time? Like, can I take (laughs) a and retire and just do this? I'm down. I'll buy a truck. Let's go. (laughs) You know, so we are getting more out there. There's several organizations such as our organization that do community trainings, but I have to tell you, there are some instances I've, I've been critical of the state's effort in various things. But through this whole pandemic, they have done a really good job of getting naloxone out into the hands of the public. And one of, you know, one of the studies that, you know, we've done has been produced here in Delaware says that 
79% of overdoses occur in a residence. Now, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily an overdose death. That's just an overdose. Right. Of those 79% of residences where they occur, only 7% have naloxone. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to get more and more of, of the naloxone out there. The other thing that comes into play as well is with fentanyl, typically when, when we distribute naloxone, people get two doses. So if in the instance where one dose isn't working after about five minutes and you've tried a couple other things, you give a second dose and hopefully that brings them up, you know, gets their breathing, the respiration going again. But with fentanyl, it's so strong, sometimes two don't do it. And we've heard instances where three, four, and five, you know, administrations have been made. So even if you have your two doses, sometimes with fentanyl, it's you can still be in some tough situations. So Dave, I'd like to kind of to close us out by thinking about if folks are listening and they're interested in making policy changes related to some of these issues in their state or their local communities, or maybe, you know, something else. I'm curious as to what kind of advice you might give to people who, who want to be like Dave and make some change. Well, the first thing is when it comes to, we've been calling this the public health crisis of the 21st century. And I'm, I'm still going to call that despite COVID because we're coming out of COVID. And at some point within the next year or two, you know, Hopefully, we'll have it totally under control. We've been going through this opioid crisis for two decades now. You mm-hmm. know, So that's why I call it the public health crisis of the 21st century. But the, the first thing to realize about this is <laughs> you look down in Washington or, or you look in, in various states, this is one issue that is really a nonpartisan issue. Mm-hmm. And you get support from both political parties on it. You can't pass legislation unanimously, you know, if you don't have the the support of both parties. So the first thing is to understand that this is a nonpartisan, you know, issue to get involved, you know, get involved at the local levels is is where you want to get involved. We're, We're fortunate here in Delaware as a small state. We can very easily be in touch with our elected officials or our state senators or state representatives. You know, I I know in Pennsylvania, it's more difficult. They Mm -hmm. have a very large legislature in Pennsylvania and they have some 250 legislators in PA. So, and PA is one of 10 legislatures that is considered full time. So it's much more difficult, you know, in in a larger state, but you can still do it. When we passed our Good Samaritan law here in Delaware, it was signed by the governor on July 2nd. And on that night, my wife and I went to dinner. And I got up the next morning and I started making some phone calls in Pennsylvania. That's where Greg was born, raised, okay. spent most of his life. That's what the detective told me. You need a 911 or good Samaritan. That next morning, July 3rd, I started making phone calls Wow. to people in Pennsylvania. And we put together a coalition in Pennsylvania of nonprofit groups that we found in all corners of the state. And we put that together. And it took longer because, again, Pennsylvania has a large legislator. We started it in, in July. We started bringing people together. We finally passed a bill that incorporated both community access to naloxone and 911 Good Samaritan all in one bill. And it was finally signed by then Governor Tom Corbett on September 30th of 2014. So we did it in little states and we did it in large states. Yep. But, you know, what you really want to do is you want, want to find out who your local legislators are. 
-hmm. If you can, you know, you want to try and set up meetings with them. In some states, they have monthly, you know, constituent coffees, you know, which is you're going to be there with a bunch of people, but you're going to get some access and you're going to get some face time. Don't be afraid to seek them out and, you know, send emails to them trying to, you know, get a meeting with them. And, you know, you want to be respectful. And, and, you know, I mean, everybody has their opinion of legislators sometimes, you know. but, you know, you want to be respectful because, you know, most of them work very hard. They spend a lot of time off hours and whatnot, you know, doing things for constituents and everything. So there are a couple things that you can do. I think you want to try and, and touch base with your media. I think as you try to pass legislation in the instance of addiction issues, I always look at it as sort of a two-pronged thing. I, I look at it as, you know, old poops like me and, and younger people. I got a lot of my information from the newspaper. So you want to hit new, local newspapers, okay. uh, local media, and try to get them to cover these stories a little bit. And then you, you want to develop a social media platform so that you can reach, you know, younger generations, people might, you know, for instance, my, my son Dave's age, so you, you can reach them there to start creating awareness, you know, of the problem. You know, there are a couple of things that you can do right off the bat. I, I always suggest that when you're looking at the media, you try to find their health reporters. Okay. Because oh, they're, they're, yeah. And, you know, every, every time we, we've tried to pass these laws, we, we, you know, a lot of instances in some states, they want to do it as a criminal justice issue. We've always tried to make it a, a health and social services or a health and human services, a human issue rather than a law enforcement issue. But we all always want to build consensus with law enforcement. We've been fortunate here in Delaware. Our law enforcement has been very progressive in addressing this issue. And, and early on, I, I remember one of the police chiefs saying, we can't handcuff our way out of this. Again, a very large police department, Newcastle County here in Delaware. They started a program a couple of years ago. It's called Hero Help. And if, if you need help, with addiction issues, you can go into the police station, request help, and they will help you as long as you have no serious charges against you. Mm -hmm. You have no major felonies. They will literally take you to detox. They will follow up. They will see about getting some post-detox care and whatnot. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of progress on that front with law enforcement. So we've, we've been fortunate there, but, you know, you want to build a coalition of partners, and, and that includes both ends of the spectrum. You know, you, you want to try and make friends with people who seemingly are opposed, you know, sure. to these ideas. So. This is super helpful. I mean, so I'm hearing a lot of coalition building. I'm hearing, like, making direct contact with the policymakers who are representing you. I'm hearing, you know, earlier on in your story, when you were talking about crafting these emails, I'm hearing a lot about, like, sharing personal stories and reasons as yeah. well. Yeah you know, getting word out, educating your community. I'm curious as to how scientists who are, you know, local scientists like me or, you know, scientists who might be really working in areas that you're trying to advocate around, maybe nationally, how they can be helpful for these, like for these efforts. And I'm also curious, you know, I know that you're, you know, you're pulling in great data and you're pulling in great science, like as you are also advocating for these changes as well. And sort of where are you finding that science? Like, how are you accessing that? Like along the way, are scientists calling you, Dave? We should be calling you, Dave, and calling you like, here's somebody <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. I, and that's how you and I, you know, first came yeah. into contact with one another. So it, it's time for Dave to pull out another one of his collection of quotes. I love this one. Nothing about us without us. 
early on, we saw policy being driven from the top down. And policy needs to be driven from the trenches. Scientific data collection and whatnot needs to be driven from the trenches. You know, I've often said that with some of the policies coming down, people are sitting saying, this is what, what we think they need. Let's give it to them. And I say, why don't you ask them what it is they need? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the same thing with the science community. You know, what are things that are needed? What science can do? I, I think science can look into studies of how we recover. You know, let's take a look at different types of MAT, you know, medical assisted treatment. Let's look at methadone. Let's look at buprenorphine. Let's look at naltrexone. And let's look at abstinence. So the, the four main things that are out there. What's more effective? Can we find out one being more effective than the other? I volunteered for several years with a, an IOP group, which is intensive outpatient program. And it was mainly younger people who were sent there by the, the drug diversion courts. And very unscientific sample, certainly, you know, small sample size, just anecdotal, my personal experience. The people who progressed best through the IOP to get their charges dropped and everything were the ones that were on the Trexone. Okay. Did I just have a, a strange sample size there that seemed to work? Or, you know, is that applicable in real life? So that's an area that I would like to see more science involved. One, one of the big fights when we, we looked at naloxone, and it, it, it's still out there, you know, we hear, oh, when you administer naloxone, you're going to wake up a raging beast and that person's going to come out of it and rip your heart out and whatnot. You know, things like that have been said by legislators. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not an exact quote, but but it's close. And my contention as a non-medical person is, can this happen? Yeah, certainly it, it can happen. But when we talk about the layperson administration of naloxone, like we're doing out in the community, this is relatively small dosages compared to somebody being taken care of medically and getting an IV of naloxone, which may put them, you know, into a violent reaction. So I would love to see some studies there to show people. I've seen five ab- abstracts, again, small sample size that basically say, does it happen? Yeah, but it only happens 7% of the time. As long as we're talking about a violent reaction where there's, you know, hands on, on somebody, you know, shouting and screaming that you ruined their high is abusive, but, you know, it, it's certainly not, you know, it's not violent. Another study I, I think that would be great from scientists is looking into safe injection sites. Yes. Uh, when, yeah. when I talk about safe injection sites, I don't speak for our organization. I speak for myself on this one because we haven't decided how we're going to handle it. But I'm in favor of safe injection sites. They've been doing it in Canada for quite a while now. They have a pretty good track record. I, I think in 20-some in years, they have only lost one person to overdose in 20 years. And you have to go, wow. There was um, some, some of the listeners probably heard about the safe house in Philadelphia or have been looking into establishing safe injection sites in Philadelphia. And I'm very pleased to say that here in Delaware, the attorney general joined safe houses in their suit to approve safe injection sites. So I I think that's another area that could be studied. Several years ago, and I haven't done any follow-up since, but there was a doctor at Scripps Institute out in California. I think his, his name was Dr. Jandra. And he was actually working on vaccines that people could be vaccinated against opioid addiction. And he also felt as if 
it could apply to alcohol and that sort of thing as well. Where he is as far as clinical trials or has he gotten a, approval of clinical trials? And, this, you know, if that's the science <laughs> and we can we can inject people at birth to reject opioids or something like that, you know, that that's something else that, that certainly we can look into. But, you know, I, again, I, I just think it's really important to talk to the people who have gone through it, you know, that to get their feedback and get their suggestions. I feel like you just mapped out like several careers worth of, of science <laughs> for folks. So that's super helpful. You know, and to me, you know, what I'm really hearing here is a call for more like community engaged and maybe participatory action research is sometimes like what folks call us in the field. Really this idea of, you know, you knocked it, you know, out with your nothing about us without us. That's a call that scientists have been hearing like for decades and in the HIV movement and in other areas. And I think it's so important for me to keep hearing that for others of us who are listening, who are scientists to keep hearing that because, you know, you don't get into studying this area, like just for fun, you get into studying this area and doing work in this area because you want to help people. And I think it's a really powerful thing to hear from you, Dave, that, well, if you want to be helpful for people, you have to talk to them to hear about what's going on in their lives and also to learn about, you know, how am I going to know what policy issues the movers and shakers are making in my, you know, in my area, unless I talk to them and find out like, oh, there's some interest in, you know, and again, this is you, but in safe injection sites, well, that's interesting. Like, what can I do to be helpful in building an evidence base that will help people to understand that this is a good thing? So, that's really helpful. And it's a great call to action for folks who are listening. Dave, I really admire your leadership and your advocacy. I'm so glad that you got greedy with the life-saving. Like, it's just so tremendous. And I really can't wait to get this truck <laughs> early to go just full-time distributing naloxone in Delaware. And then we're going to go up to Pennsylvania and just go like nationwide. I think that this is going to be tremendous. So. So one last stolen quote. <laughs> okay, yes, please. The job of a citizen is to keep their mouth open. Mm. And it's a quote from a gentleman by the name of Gunther Grass, who is a German poet. What a good one. Will you please keep your mouth open and we'll we'll <laughs> say it. Yeah, we'll shout louder behind you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Join arms and shout with me. Yes. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Dave. Thanks to the Stigma and Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware for their help with the podcast, including Sarah Lopez, Molly Marine, James Wallace, and Ashley Robert. Thanks to City Girl for the music. As always, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Sex, Drugs, Science, and stay up to date on new episodes by clicking subscribe. Thanks to all of you for listening.